Good morning, Mountain. Well, this is a great time to be together as a church family. Great time, if you're new this fall, to jump into the story with us. It's also just an exciting time uh, to jump into the story of what God is doing uh, through his his church here at Mountain. Mountain has had a great presence in this community for 189 years now. Uh, and it's always been a community of people who look beyond themselves. They always look beyond themselves to make room for more, to just invite others to be a part of what God was doing in their midst. And they've looked beyond themselves to look beyond where they are and where they have been, to, to look forward to what God would do and the new frontiers of where he was leading. Uh, Throughout their history, a slogan has just been that as great as their past has been, it it is incomparable when compared to the future that God has for us as a church. And and today we begin a new chapter of this epic story that God is writing in us and through us with the launch of the Edgewood campus. And uh, we've already celebrated that, but it's just an exciting day for us as a church. So, you know, you can, yeah, we can just clap and celebrate that one more time. That'd be great. So hundreds of people worshiping across town at John Carroll School at our Bel Air campus, and now hundreds of people also gathered in Edgewood for the Edgewood campus launch. Uh, We are on a journey together through the story. Uh, And as we've said before, as we're reading this book, the story is not the Bible, but 90% of what is in this book comes straight from Scripture. And then it's put together like a novel in a chronological order. And writing and putting it together like that helps us to understand the meta narrative, the upper story, or this big picture of what God is doing through His story. And we're convinced that if you join with us in this journey, if you read the chapters uh, in advance of the weekend, and you come together for weekend services, and you circle up with a group of friends to talk about this, you'll come to know God's story. You definitely will. But our prayer is also that you will come to know the God of the story. And that through this journey, that God will begin to transform your story and write it into his story. Now, our goal each week is to read the chapter ahead of the weekend that we'll be preaching on that topic. And so uh, just a show of hands, how many of you have read chapter three this week? Okay, very good. Good job. This is week three of the story. And so if you're joining us new this weekend, uh, it's not too late to jump in. You've only got a couple of chapters to catch up on. Pick up copies of the story at the Resource Center today. Still get them two for $10. Uh, it's a great buy. If you don't have 10 bucks, we'd love to give you one. So stop by the Resource Center and get that on your way out today. A couple of weeks ago, we started. We began in the, what, the beginning. And uh, it's a good place to start. We looked at the beginning and where God created everything. And God created everything and it was good. It was good. But then we, us human folks, we kind of messed it up a bit, didn't we? And now it's, it's badly broken. But the good news is that God works within brokenness to rescue and restore his creation. And the story just continues to surprise us, though, at how much brokenness our God can handle. And it surprises us at the messy people that God chooses for his purposes. Last week, we were introduced to a man named Abraham. And he was an idol-worshiping 75-year-old man with a barren wife. And God chooses Abraham to say, I'm going to use you and your family to bless the world. God comes to this barren couple and says, you're going to have kids and your kids are going to have kids. And you're going to have so many descendants that you'll never be able to count them all. God says, they're going to be my people that I use to bless the entire world. God has a plan that is just driven by his love for the world, the people he created. And he's heartbroken over the mess that we've made. And he's working diligently to put the pieces back together. 
We've been referring to God's overarching purpose as the upper story. This is what God is up to in his story. This is the story from God's perspective. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's just way more complex perspective than our vantage point, isn't it? And we live our lives, we live our lives in what we'll call the lower story. It's the details and challenges and joys of everyday life. It's, it's our story. And sometimes from our limited perspective, it's hard for us to make sense. What is God doing in the upper story? It's, it's just not revealed to us in our everyday lives, is it? We get little glimpses here and there. And the, and the Bible gives us a more complete perspective. But as we go about our days, it's, it's sometimes difficult for us to know. What exactly is God up to? Have you ever wondered that before? We expect that God's purposes are going to fit into our limited understanding of how things work as if we could understand it. And every once in a while, God just needs to step in and give us a reminder that he says, my story is bigger than anything you think you know. I think every once in a while we need a reminder like that, that God's got a more complete picture. And with that in the background, we turn to Genesis chapter 37. If you've got your Bibles with you or if you've got the story with you, it's chapter 3. Genesis 37 or chapter 3, you can turn there now. We're looking today at the life of Joseph. And it's one of the most compelling, beautiful stories in the entire Bible. It spans 13 chapters to close out the book of Genesis. And it's a story you're going to want to know. And not just so that you can learn a story out of the Bible. It's it's, you'll want to know it because as often as the case with the Bible, you're going to find yourself in this story. Because if we look back at our lives, all of us start out with certain dreams for our lives, don't we? But reality has a way of waking us up. And that's what we see happen in Joseph's life. Joseph was the son of Jacob. He was the grandson of Isaac. And Joseph was the great-grandson of Abraham. And in Genesis 37, we're introduced to Joseph. And when we, we meet Joseph, he's 17 years old and he has 10 older brothers. And they're working together out on the family ranch. And, and remember now, as a backdrop, this is the family, this, this family, this is the family that God has promised to use to bless the entire world. And so we read about Joseph in Genesis 37. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Okay, nice. We, we just meet this guy and already he's running off and tattling on his brothers. Great role model for us. So now Israel, in verse 3, Israel is Jacob. He was often referred to as Israel. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. Now it's bad enough that Joseph you know, loves him more, but he also buys him this coat. And we don't know, maybe it looked like the Technicolor dream coat or the coat of many colors. And we don't know what exactly it looked like. But because of the way he treated Joseph and because of this coat that he, that he gave Joseph to wear, it was clear that Joseph was the favorite. Now think back to the story of Jacob. Jacob was the favorite, favorite child by his mother. And that caused all kinds of family strife for Jacob always embattled with his brother. And, and now here's Jacob doing the very same thing with his own kids. But if we look around us and maybe even at our own lives, we notice that destructive behavior, destructive patterns often get passed down from one generation to the next. And maybe that's happened in your own family. And it can have an impact, can't it? Well, here's the result of what happened in Joseph's life. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. They hated their own brother, Joseph. 
And they could not speak a kind word to him. And honestly, I, I have to say, from what we've read about Joseph so far, I'm, I'm not sure I would like him either. I mean, here's this punk little brother. He's daddy's favorite. He's squealing on his brothers. I mean, you can kind of understand that he was Jacob's favorite, but probably not a favorite for anybody else in the family. Maybe not even for us. Some of us have seen this kind of family dysfunction firsthand. Maybe you also grew up in a home where just the people in your house weren't capable of speaking a kind word. Instead, it was just filled with negativity and criticism and harsh tones. As we look closer at Joseph's family, it's like a bad reality television show. I mean, he's got a mom and three stepmoms living in one household. He's got a group of brothers, ten brothers, that just can't stand it. I mean, this is not a blended family. This is more like a food processor family, right? I mean, in homes like this that Joseph is in, homes like this just have a way of crushing our dreams. But Joseph, the dreamer, well, he doesn't make things any better. He doesn't help matters. In verse 5, Joseph has these dreams as a teenager that his brothers are going to be bowing down to him. So if you're a younger sibling, you might want to take note of this. If you have a dream that all your other siblings are going to be bowing down to you, keep said dream to yourself. You don't need to be sharing it at the breakfast table over Cheerios, all right? Just keep it to yourself. But Joseph has this dream, and in the morning he's like, Hey guys, guess what I dreamed about last night? And these brothers that already hated him just hated him even more. So one day, Jacob, the father, sends Joseph out into the fields where the other brothers are all working hard. And that paints a picture right there because Joseph isn't working. He's back at the house. And, Joseph, and Jacob sends him off to his brothers. They're working hard in the fields, sweating, tired, hungry. And here comes pampered Joseph strolling out to the fields in his fancy coat. And the brothers see him coming and they also see an opportunity. And it's probably an opportunity they've been waiting for for a long, long time. Here comes the dreamer, they say. Come on now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. And then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Let's kill him. It's their brother. I mean, this is the Bible, folks. I'm not making this up. We're watching CSI and Law in order to satisfy our intrigue. But I mean, this is right here in Scripture. Revenge, murder, families fighting. You don't need Jerry Springer. If that's what you're looking for, it's all in the Bible. So here are his brothers. These ten brothers jump him and they rip off his coat and they beat him up. They don't kill him, they, but they throw him down in this deep hole. And then they sit down and have lunch. I guess that was enough for the morning. Take a break. And they sit down to eat and along comes this caravan of merchants heading towards Egypt. And Judah, one of the brothers, speaks up and says, Hey, let's not kill our brother. Let's sell him as a slave to these traders. We might as well make some coin out of this, right? So that's what they do. They actually sell their own brother into slavery. Can you imagine that? And then they watch him right away. And then they're standing around and they've got to figure out what is, what is they're going to tell their father. And so they take Joseph's coat and they stand in in goat's blood. And they take it back home to their father and they say, Dad, it was so terrible. A beast attacked and killed Joseph. And this bloody coat is all that's left of him. Can you imagine this dad who loved Joseph more than anything? It wrecked him. He loved that boy and now he was gone. Imagine just standing there in that living room, though those brothers are probably wondering if it was worth it. The coins are still jingling in their pockets, but that was a small compensation for the look that they see on their father's face. A devastated father chokes on his own tears while ten sons try to swallow the lump in their throats that was lodged there by their guilt. 
And meanwhile, there's this 17-year-old boy nursing his bruises from the beating, chained up in a bumpy wagon train headed towards a foreign land where he's going to be sold into slavery. And we ask ourselves, what in the world is God up to? What is going on here? You ever wondered that? You ever asked God that? This is the family that God is going to use to bless the world. I mean, this is not exactly the Huxtables here. Maybe your family isn't either. Maybe your life has taken some unexpected turns. Maybe you've had to deal with way more than you deserve. Maybe somebody else's choices have left their painful mark on you in your life. Maybe your life is just not what you planned. Maybe it's one that's been forced upon you. And so we scramble around in the dysfunction and the chaos and we wonder, where is God in all this mess? The Joseph story, I think, causes us to ask that question. Where is God? But this story also gives us the answer. If we read ahead in chapter 39, it says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Where is God, we ask? The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Where is God, we ask? He was with Joseph. He was with this 17-year-old punk. He was with him going to a foreign land miles away from the land that he had promised to give to Jacob's descendant. God was with him in the mess. Finally, we hear a word from the upper story. The lower story is just filled with chaos. It's experiencing severe turbulence. But then with this simple statement, it's as if the Lord reaches out and just steadies the plane. Have you ever felt that before? When life's chaos is just swirling around you and you you don't know how you're even going to make it. But right there in the middle of it, right in the thick of it, you have this tremendous sense of God's presence. And there in the middle of the storm, there is just this peace that you can't begin to explain. There are some friends at Mountain recently who have just, their families have been rocked by the premature death of spouses and parents. And as they look back on the the turmoil and pain of that experience, they have this deep sense of God's presence with them. Even as they were walking through the valley of the shadow of death, God promised and He was with them. Now, it's still hard and there are still a lot of questions that they just ask of God. But God has been with them in their grief. And as we look at Joseph's story, we have no idea where this story is headed. We don't know what it all means yet. We just, we're not sure Joseph's still a slave in a foreign country. We don't know what's going to come of all of that, but we do know this. God was with Joseph. Now, I can imagine what Joseph was going through. We're not told anything about his psychological or emotional health, but don't you wonder what he must have been feeling when his own brother sold him into slavery, sold him out? He goes from a favored son with a fancy coat to a slave who has no right to own anything. He's living in a foreign country, 17 years old, probably never going to see his family again. And in spite of all of that, we find a Joseph who has the maturity and the fortitude and the faith to make the most of the situation he was given. He earned the trust of his boss and he was put in charge of the man's entire estate. And verse five says, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. Isn't that amazing? All of the brokenness and dysfunction in Joseph's life 
it's still not enough to prevent God stepping in and blessing him. None of it makes it impossible for God to make his presence known. Believe it or not, though, this story, well, it's just getting started. And things are about to heat up a little bit. It says, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. I think that's probably why Ben asked me to to preach this weekend. (laughs) Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Okay, here we go. Like we thought Desperate Housewives was original, right? But no, it stuff's right here in the Bible. So Potiphar's wife, she goes to Joseph and it gets quite graphic. She says to him, come to bed with me. And, and that's really a PG translation. If we were to go back to the original Hebrew, it probably wouldn't even get a PG-13 rating. It was very crass. I mean, it was way more than her just saying, hey, I just met you, so call me maybe. I mean, this was, this was aggressive. I mean, here's Joseph. He's this 20-something young guy. He's got the run of the house. And now if he wants it, he can have the lady of the house too. And nobody's going to know about it. Wow. Imagine that. You're, you're a slave. You're a single 20-something guy. Now, if you're a single 20-something guy and you're in this situation, I know what you're thinking. I mean, everybody here knows what you're thinking, right? And if you had to justify those thoughts to somebody else, you probably could do it. You'd be saying something like, God owes me. My dreams were shattered. My life was taken from me. I got a raw deal. God must be paying me back by offering me this lady. Joseph doesn't say any of those things. Joseph says to Potiphar's wife, how could I do such a thing to my master? And how could I sin against God like this? But I want to ask, how could God do such a thing to Joseph? How could God allow this to happen? He's sold into slavery by his brothers. His dad thinks he's dead. He's serving as a slave with no rights. He's probably never going to be married. How could God do this? How could he allow it to happen? And yet Joseph is faithful in the midst of his disappointment. And Joseph turns her down. And it's not just once that he turns her down. Verse 10 says, And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. And this lady won't take no for an answer. She's determined to make this a reality show worth watching. So she corners him when the house is empty and she grabs his cloak ready to pounce. And Joseph does the only thing that you can do when it comes to sexual temptation. He runs. He flees the house. He gets out of there. So if sexual sin is a struggle for you, flee, run. That is your only shot. If you linger, it's over. You flirt, the temptation grows. You indulge, it's going to enslave you. All you can do is run. So in an incredible move of integrity, Joseph runs. Joseph does the right thing. I'm starting to like this guy a little bit. But you've probably heard the phrase, out of the frying pan and into the fire. So after Joseph runs off, Potiphar's wife cries rape and everybody comes running and she says, that slave boy tried to take advantage of me, but I screamed and he ran and look, he left his cloak behind. So here we got Joseph and he's lost another coat. And he's about to lose a lot more than that. Potiphar's wife then has Potiphar throw Joseph into prison and Joseph spends the next 10 years in prison. And what's he done to deserve this? Nothing. Ten years in prison. In the story, we're going to find lots of people who make decisions that that lead to great disappointment. We've already seen it with Adam and Eve when they take a bite of the fruit and with Abraham and Sarah and they bring Hagar into their marriage. And all of these decisions lead to heartbreak and disappointment. 
But that's not always the case. Joseph, we find once again, ending up in a hole. But this time, it's because he did something right. Are you catching that? Joseph went to prison for doing the right thing. And that's just not fair. I mean, hasn't this guy paid his dues? Hasn't he been faithful to God in the bleakest and most tempting of situations? I mean, and this is the reward he gets? Ten years in prison? What is God up to? You ever asked that question? You ever said, that's not fair, God. Where you've done all the right things and you've gotten all the wrong results. Now, we're usually okay if we've done wrong and we, and we have to pay for our sins. We're, we'll own up to that. We deserve it. But what about when we get it right? What about when we're doing everything in our power to stay on track and somebody comes along and knocks us off the rails? Where is God in that? Joseph goes from this cistern in the ground to a slave cart and now to a dungeon. I think he had some time to be asking that question. Where is God? And the answer comes to us in verse 20 and 21 says, while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. And that's great and all that he had favor in the prison warden's eyes. But I felt like I wanted that sentence to say and granted him freedom or granted him justice. But now, you know, for Joseph, it was enough that the Lord was with him. And God provided for him right there in the place where he was. And God will do the same for you and me. Has that ever been just enough for you? God just sustaining you right where you are. Maybe you're in the midst of an unwelcome or an unjust or an uncomfortable situation. One where you really wish you could find some relief. You really want God to get you out of it. But instead, right there in the moment, you just get a a reassurance of God's presence in your life and an opportunity inviting you to make the most of the situation, the hand that you're dealt. Is that enough for us? When the world does us wrong, when it's a relationship that's stuck or you're stuck in a job or when sickness takes you ground or when your grief is just overwhelming you or when your life just isn't working at all. Is it enough for you to know that God is with you and that he will show you how to be faithful, even in the toughest of situations? Joseph had to wrestle with that every morning when he woke up for those 10 years sitting in that prison cell. And God was enough. Years passed by and Joseph welcomes in two new prisoners into the prison, the cupbearer and the baker for Pharaoh himself. And one day these guys woke up distraught over some dreams that each of them had had. And, and Joseph, who was quite the dreamer himself, listened to them and interpreted their dreams for them. For the cupbearer, there was great fortune. He was going to be restored to his position and released from prison. And for the baker, well, not so much. He was going to be executed. And each happened just as Joseph had predicted. And Joseph says to the cupbearer right before he's released from prison, please remember me when you're on the outside. And the cupbearer says, oh, sure thing, I will. And we think, all right, finally for Joseph, there's this glimmer of hope. He's finally going to get released until we read in verse 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. How much does this one guy have to endure? For two more years, Joseph sits in a dungeon as an innocent prisoner. What in the world 
is going on? What has God up to here? There's got to be a purpose to all of this. Why is it that the Bible spends 13 chapters telling us about this guy through whom the whole world is going to be blessed, who has all kinds of potential and now is sitting rotting in a prison cell? What is God doing here? We're about to find out. Well, the two more years go by and then Pharaoh has a dream. It's a troubling, puzzling dream. In fact, he has a couple of them and he tells his staff. And then all of a sudden, the cupbearer has a flashback. He says, oh, hey, I I know a guy. Now, it took him two years to remember Joseph, but he finally does. He remembers Joseph and they bring Joseph in to hear Pharaoh's dream. And Joseph hears it. And with great faith, he says, Pharaoh, I can't give you the answers to your dreams. But my God can. I can hardly believe he had the faith to say something like that. I mean, this is the same God that hasn't given Joseph the answers he's been hoping for for the last 13 years. And to stand there and be that committed to God at this point in his journey is just remarkable. But with God's help, Joseph helps Pharaoh understand the dreams. It's dreams that paint this picture of what's to come for Egypt. Seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. It's a severe food shortage throughout the region. So Joseph says, you've got to prepare for this. If you can get organized during these first seven years and store food away, then you're going to be able to make it through the following seven years. And Pharaoh's convinced by the plan. He thinks it sounds great. And he says to Joseph, you're just the right man. And so just like that, Joseph goes from being a prisoner to be promoted, being promoted to the second in command to run things for this nation, to help them get through this next 14 years. And we're thinking, what in the world? Here's this guy, he's a prisoner and a slave. And then he goes to become the second most powerful man in the world. How does something like that happen? Who can write a story like that? Um, it's because God's writing the story. We saw that last week, didn't we? I mean, God wants to populate an entire nation. So who's he going to choose? He says, "Um, how about that elderly and fertile couple? We'll start with them. Now the time has come for God to rescue his people from a famine. And so he says, I've got to position somebody into a place of authority to make this happen. So who's he going to choose? He says, how about a former ex-slave that is hated by his family and has been in prison? That's who I'll choose. Our God has a way of just choosing an unlikely cast of characters like you and me to write his story through. So Joseph is promoted all the way to the top. He's riding around in the royal chariot. He's got the ring of authority. He's got a royal robe to wear. And Joseph, let's make sure you don't lose your coat this time, all right? People are saying, Joseph, you the man. He's in charge. Just got to be careful. Don't fall for one of those pyramid schemes over there in Egypt. Now, just to be clear, Pharaoh says to Joseph, he says, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, Joseph, no one will lift a hand or a foot in all of Egypt. Wow, that's a lot of power. So, I mean, all of this worked out pretty well for Joseph, right? Aside for 13 years, 13 lost years. Joseph is now 30 years old. He was sold into slavery at 17. Have you ever been in bondage that long? Maybe some of us in an actual cell, maybe in bondage to an addiction. Maybe you're just stuck in depression. Maybe it's a relationship or a pattern or habit in your life that just seems to own you. Maybe you're right there in the middle of it right now. And when you're in the middle of something like that, it's tempting to conclude that there is just no hope. You know, Joseph's circumstances didn't change much in 13 years. In fact, when they did change, they actually got worse. But Joseph changed. 
Joseph grew. He matured. He was faithful. He honed his skills in the most desperate of circumstances. And he had no guarantees as he was doing all of that, that his circumstances were ever going to change. And Joseph was faithful anyway. When the cupbearer forgot about him, it must have felt like to Joseph that that was as close as he was ever going to get. And now that he had been forgotten again, all hope was lost. But Joseph knew that his God was with him and that he was still called to do right, no matter the circumstances. Who could have ever guessed that Joseph's leadership and administration that he developed as a slave and in a dungeon would prepare him to lead an entire nation? Only God could dream of something like that. So I don't know what you're dealing with right now. Maybe you're in the midst of something and you've just pleaded with God to take it away. And it's not getting any better. And I don't, know, I don't have any idea when or how or what God is going to do in your life. I just know that we are called, just like Joseph, to be faithful in all circumstances. It reminds me of what Jesus said when he said, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. So why is it that Joseph all of a sudden is entrusted with this great authority? I mean, doesn't there have to be some larger story at play? I mean, this can't be just about Egyptian political reform. It's got to be something grander than that. Joseph might like it to be that simple. I mean, he's finally got a good life. He's married. He has two kids. And when he actually names the kids, he names them in a way that symbolizes his desire to put his entire past behind him, to forget about it all. And just when he puts it all behind him, His brothers show up. The same brothers that sold him into slavery. And here they come looking for food. Because the famine has reached all the way to their region. It's reached all the way up north to where Joseph came from. And Jacob and his family, well, they need food. And so the brothers show up. Now get this. Here's how it all worked. This is the big story. This is what God was doing the whole time. The only place that there is food is in Egypt. And the only reason there's food in Egypt is because they prepared for it. And the only reason they prepared for it was because Joseph made a plan. And the only reason that Joseph made a plan is because God revealed it to him in a dream. And the only way he could have interpreted that dream is if he had access to Pharaoh. And the only way he had access to Pharaoh was through the cupbearer. And the only way he met the cupbearer was through being in jail. And he was in jail because he fled temptation. Are you seeing how all these pieces fit together? Are you putting all the pieces there in place. I mean, all of this has to be just crashing into Joseph's mind right in this time, standing in front of his brothers. It is so bizarre. 22 years ago, Joseph has this dream of his brothers bowing down before him and it ticked him off so bad they sold him into slavery in Egypt. And now after more than two decades, he finds himself standing in front of his brothers who are face down on the ground before him asking for food. What has God been up to? Through all the hatred and injustice, did God condone it? No, he redeemed it. All the lies and abandonment, did he want that for Joseph? No, but he redeemed it. All of the pain and suffering, does God enjoy seeing that happen? Oh, no, but he can redeem it. For 22 years, Joseph has been trying to forget all that had happened to him. And God steps in and says, no, don't you ever forget the promise that I made to you and your family. Because I I have not forgotten. And I'm going to bless the world through you. And nothing can stop me from fulfilling that promise. Not imprisonment, not deportation, not family destruction, dysfunction. Even if you end up forgotten in a hole, Joseph, I am invisibly and imperceptibly at work restoring all that has been broken. Our God is a redeeming God. He can fix whatever is broken. And I hope we don't miss that today. I hope it sinks in for you. 
it began to sink in for Joseph. And as he's trying to manage all the emotions flooding over him, he doesn't, he doesn't reveal himself to his brothers right away. He wants to know for sure if they've changed or not. I mean, they were a pretty jealous and hateful group when he last saw them. He must have wondered, can God even change people like that? But finally, through some tests, they prove themselves to Joseph. And by then, Joseph just can't keep it a secret anymore. And his emotion overwhelms him. And he says to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were just terrified in his presence, as you can imagine. And then Joseph says to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. And then to reassure them, Joseph says it again later. And and this this sentence is just the punchline to the entire story. Joseph says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. Wow. Sometimes when the lower story of our lives is such a mess. We need the Bible to help us see the upper story of what God is doing. The redemption story. God's great rescue effort. And Joseph's life is a testimony to what the New Testament writer Paul wrote when he said, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Friends, nothing is beyond repair. No one is irredeemable. And Joseph learned during those 22 years, and he could tell you that no situation is so broken that it would prevent God from working in the mess to bless and restore and redeem and to give life just as he's promised to do. This Joseph story is just, it's remarkable. I love hearing it and reading it and telling it. I I love it because it makes me think back over my own story of how I've seen God's hand at work, see God present in my life and providing for me, even when I wasn't even aware of his presence at the time. It makes me want to say a lot less often, why God, in a complaining way that when things don't go my way. And instead, it encourages me to ask questions like, how, God? How are you calling me to be faithful in this situation? And what, God? What is it that you're trying to teach me through this situation? And I love this story because I think it helps us think of Jesus. Because if we just think of Jesus' story through the lower story, it's not a very pretty picture. Jesus was here just a short time on earth, and he, his life ends through brutal suffering and crucifixion. And it didn't make much sense to the people in that time. But what was intended to harm him, God used for good to accomplish the, the saving of many lives, just like in Joseph's story. Saving of many lives, including ours. Proving that even death is Well, it's not irredeemable. God can conquer death. Nothing is too broken. No one is too messed up. Nothing is beyond God's reach. Christ died and rose again to prove it once and for all. So may God remind you of his presence with you, even in the tough times. May you see God's invisible hand at work in your life. And may God inspire faithfulness in you, no matter your circumstance. Let's pray together. Oh God, you are the great author and you are the great redeemer. We all can relate to what it's like to feel great disappointment 
when things just don't turn out like we'd hoped. So Lord, would you help us to see the story that you're writing? Would you help us, God, to put our faith in you that in this life or the next, everything through the power of Jesus Christ will be redeemed. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.